0: Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is October 27th, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Put Your Hand on My Shoulder and Reduce It. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern, who is laughing at my attempt to sing. He is an emergency physician and the creator of the FOMED project called First 10 EM. Welcome back to the SGM, Justin. It is so good to see you, my friend. Well, I can't do a show with you
1: without hearing a quick Theo update. What's new in his world? Well, it's end of October. He does like the skeletons for Halloween a great deal, but I'll tell you, I think he's preparing for a guest appearance on the Skeptic's Guide because he loves counting. And can you guess his favorite number? Ooh. That's right, Ken. He counts just to the number five. And so I, I'm pretty sure he's going to be replacing me as a guest host in no time at all. You have trained him well. All right, give us a case. So a 19-year-old man presents to the emergency department with his first anterior shoulder dislocation after trying to create one of his favorite scenes in one of my favorite movies, Lethal Weapon. But unfortunately, he failed. He's now in significant pain, but your charge nurse informs you that, like most days since the pandemic started, the department is completely full of admitted patients and there is nowhere safe to perform a procedural sedation, let alone the staff to do it. The patient asks through clenched teeth whether there are any other options to get his shoulder back in. Well, we have covered shoulder issues a few times on the s
0: There was an episode looking at diagnosing rotator cuff injuries. We had a show on the best position for post-dislocation immobilization, and using point-of-care ultrasound, that's POCUS, to diagnose shoulder dislocations.
1: The shoulder joint has the widest range of motion of any joint in the human body. This makes it very useful, but also very susceptible to being dislocated. The vast majority of shoulder dislocations are anterior, and young active men, not us anymore, Ken, are at the greatest risk of dislocating their shoulder.
0: And while there is a wide range of mobility, there is a wide range of diagnosing shoulder dislocations. I mean, you can do it clinically, you can use POCUS, you can use x-rays, and just thinking about it, there are probably 50 ways to reduce a shoulder. And some clinicians perform reduction without any analgesic at all, while others choose from a variety of options, including peripheral nerve block, intraarticular anesthesia, And
1: full-on procedural sedation. I think procedural sedation might represent maybe the greatest achievement for the practice of emergency medicine, or at least it's up there. It allows us to perform a wide variety of necessary but painful procedures without causing our patients pain. Although minor events like apnea or hypoxia are pretty common, significant adverse events are very rare, and the benefit is clear. However, for most departments, procedural uh, sedation represents a logistical challenge that can really increase a patient's length of stay. But peripheral nerve blocks,
0: they can be very effective at controlling pain, but they do require a degree of practitioner skill. And the use of ultrasound to guide these procedures has increased their popularity and perhaps their success in recent years. There have been a few randomized control trials of peripheral nerve blocks for shoulder
1: dislocation, but without definitive results. Intraarticular anesthetic injections are another option, and they seem to me like they should be incredibly easy when you consider that humoral head is just not sitting in the glenoid fossa, and so the joint is wide open and it should be easy to access. Intraarticular injection has been compared with procedural sedation for shoulder dislocation with some potential benefits. However, in one study, emergency physicians missed the joint space almost half the time when they were performing a landmark-based shoulder injection. Therefore,
0: uncertainty remains about the ideal technique to provide analgesia and or sedation for the reduction of an anterior shoulder dislocation. This paper that we're going to review today describes a systematic review and network meta-analysis, or NMA, comparing the safety and efficacy of intravenous sedation, intra-articular injection, and peripheral nerve block for the reduction of anterior shoulder dislocations.
1: So Justin, give us the clinical question. So what is the safety and efficacy of intravenous sedation, intraarticular injection, and peripheral nerve blocks for the reduction of anterior shoulder dislocations? And the reference. So this is Hayashi et al., comparative efficacy of sedation or analgesia methods for reduction of anterior shoulder dislocation, a systematic review and network meta-analysis, academic emergency medicine, October 2022, hot off the press.
0: That's right. It is hot off the press. So let's run through the PCOT. What was the population in
1: this study? So they looked for RCTs that assessed sedation or analgesia methods for the reduction of anterior shoulder dislocations, diagnosed either by physical exam or x-ray in patients older than 15 years of age.
0: And then they excluded those who were allergic to study medications, if they had multiple traumas, fractures except for the Hill-Sac or a Bankart lesion, hemodynamic instability, or respiratory
1: distress. How about the interventions? So they looked at either IV sedation, intraarticular anesthetic injection, or a peripheral nerve block. And what did they compare it to? Uh, Patients who either received placebo or no sedation. And
0: let's go through their outcomes. What was their primary outcome? So there were three primary
1: outcomes. (gasps) Three? Three primary outcomes, Ken. Immediate success rate, patient satisfaction, and emergency department length of stay. (sighs) Ah. primary
0: you keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means.
1: All right, how about secondary outcomes? A number of important outcomes here as well adverse events, pain scores, time required for the reduction, the number of reduction attempts, and the total success rate of the reduction.
0: And for type of study, this was a systematic review and network meta-analysis. Alright, it is also an SGM Hop episode, and we normally have one of the authors on the show to discuss their paper. This time, we have the corresponding author who is an orthopedic trauma surgeon in Japan. Dr. Yamamoto was kind enough to give a shout-out to his co-investigators and send responses to our 10 nerdy questions. And we'll put those responses on the SGM blog. But I can certainly understand how hard it would be to talk nerdy in another language. Could you do it in
1: Japanese there, Justin? I managed to order some sushi one time, but that is as far as my Japanese goes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's hard enough talking nerdy in English,
0: our our first language, let alone a second language. But Dr. Yamamoto wanted to give a shout out to his co-authors. One of my superpowers, besides not being able to sing and name the lyrics to every 80s song is the ability to mispronounce names. So I'm going to get out of my comfort zone here and try to give a shout out to his co-authors. There is Hayashi, Kano, Kuroda, Shurashita, and Kataoka, who are members of the Scientific Research Works Peer Support Group, or the SRWSPSG, which is a scientific research group mainly conducting systematic reviews, and I apologize to every single one of you because I know I probably mispronounced your name. But what I can pronounce are the author's conclusions, so here they are. The results of our NMA indicated that three sedation or analgesia methods might result in little to no difference in the success rate of reduction and patient satisfaction. IAA and PNB had no adverse respiratory events. End of quote. Okay, Justin, let's go through the quality checklist for therapeutic systematic reviews. Question number one, was the clinical question sensible and answerable? Yes, it was. Did they do a good
1: search? Was it detailed and exhaustive? They absolutely did. They searched MBase, Medline, and Google Scholar for published studies, but they also searched two databases for unpublished studies. The primary studies where they have high methodologic quality. No, they weren't. So the authors here assess uh, the, their confidence in, in, their, in their findings and talk about various sources of bias, and in almost all cases, they determine that their confidence is low or very low. And the assessment of the studies were reproducible? Yeah, so they followed those PRISMA guidelines, and their assessment was very clearly laid out. The outcomes were clinically relevant. Yes, or mostly. We could debate which is more important, success on the first reduction attempt or overall success, but both results are presented here. The biggest issue might be that not all reported adverse events are likely to be equally clinically relevant. Question six.
0: There was low statistical heterogeneity for the primary outcome.
1: Unsure. This was somewhat unclear to me, Ken, uh, but there was a lot of clinical heterogeneity in these trials in that somewhat different techniques and definitions were used in all the different trials.
0: And the seventh and final question, the treatment effect. Was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant?
1: No. Although there are some potential differences, there is a lack of certainty, and so I would give this one a no. No. All right. Let's
0: go through the results. After a full text review, they identified sixteen randomized control trials that fulfilled their inclusion and exclusion criteria. These trials encompass a total of almost a thousand patients. Of the sixteen studies, eleven of them compared IV sedation to interarticular injection. Four compared nerve blocks to sedation, and one compared interarticular injection to nothing.
1: Justin, what was the key result? So there were no statistical differences in immediate success rate between the techniques, and there was uncertainty regarding patient satisfaction, and intraarticular anesthetic had the shortest length of stay.
0: All right, let's go through, and I'm forcing myself through this, their three primary outcomes. The first of their three primary outcomes, immediate success. So there were no statistical differences here, Ken. All right. Their
1: second primary outcome, patient satisfaction. They say there's no statistical differences. When I look through the various graphs in the supplemental material, there might be a statistical difference favoring IV sedation over intraarticular uh, injection, but to me that just points to the overall uncertainty in this data. And the third and final primary outcome, ED length of stay. So they classify the evidence as very uncertain, but intraarticular injection. Had a statistically shorter length of stay than IV sedation. There was not a statistical difference between peripheral nerve block and IV sedation.
0: All right, well, they had three primary outcomes. Let's go through their five secondary outcomes adverse events.
1: So, two of the studies reported no adverse events. Respiratory events were most common in the IV sedation group. Psychological agitation and drowsiness were reported in the intraarticular uh, anesthetic group. And very mild local anesthetic systemic toxicity was reported in the peripheral nerve block group. How about their pain scores? So uncertain, interarticular injections might result in lower pain scores than peripheral nerve blocks, but there were not differences noted between interarticular injection or peripheral nerve block and IV sedation.
0: How about how long it took to get that shoulder back in?
1: Again, uncertain. Uncertain. Both intra injections and peripheral nerve block might take longer than IV sedation by 5 and 15 minutes, respectively.
0: I guess when you're considering the overall length of stay in our emergency departments today,
1: 5 to 15 minutes would be, what, a rounding error? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, debate between this is physician time with the patient versus their overall length of stay, which was not changed and takes up maybe our more precious resource right now which is nursing resources. So it's hard to say which is the more important procedure time or overall ED length of stay. I would
0: have to say nursing time is the most important. That
1: is always the correct answer. Yes. All right. Uh,
0: Number of reduction attempts.
1: Very uncertain but there were no clear differences between the groups. And how about the total
0: success rate of reductions? No clear differences. All right. So those were the key results. Now we're going to talk a little nerdy and normally we get the author to respond, but we are going to put their responses into the show notes. So if you want to hear how Dr. Yamamoto and his team responded to our 10 nerdy questions, you
1: know what? You're going to have to go to the blog and look this up. And while you're on the blog, it's an SGM hop episode. So you might as well leave your own questions and comments while you're there. Yeah, and then
0: Dr. Yamamoto, he was great at responding, so I'm sure he would be uh, open to responding to questions on the blog. The first thing, though, I mean, we've already said it so many times, so we put this one right up front, and it's one of the favorite things that we sort of talk about, and that is uncertainty and uncertainty in medicine. Certainly, we get some blowback with that when we talk about uncertainty in other areas of medicine. But in this case, rather than just focusing on statistical significance, these authors used the language of uncertainty throughout the results, with almost all the results being very uncertain. This language is not used in all meta-analyses, and so we asked them to comment on why they phrased it this way in their manuscript.
1: The second question that we had was about accounting for bias in meta-analyses. Personally, I always find it really difficult to appropriately account for the potential bias in the individual studies when I'm reading the bigger meta-analysis. If I wouldn't trust the results of a single RCT, it doesn't help to just mix it in with a bunch of other trials that have similar methodological issues. You get that classic G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out problem. These authors performed a secondary analysis that focused only on the studies that had the lowest risk of bias. And in that analysis, IV sedation was actually statistically better than intraarticular injections. So we asked the authors, how would you account for bias in meta analyses? And therefore, which of the outcomes do they trust the most?
0: The third nerdy point was about it being a network meta analysis. One of the weaknesses of a network meta analysis is they do not directly compare one treatment to another. And so we questioned how much confidence should we have in the results
1: because of this limitation? Nerdy question number four is about not all procedural sedation being created equal. Although I'm not sure that I can verify this claim, we often state that the success of a shoulder reduction really lies more in the hands of the anesthetist than in the person performing the procedure. It's that appropriate muscle relaxation that makes this procedure easy, and under-sedation can really doom you to failure. Furthermore, the choice of sedative may impact adverse events. In my career, I have essentially only used ketamine and propofol as, as sedatives. This systematic review accepted all types and all doses of sedatives, but the studies were essentially all of a combination of benzodiazepine and opioid, which is really not seen anymore in modern practice. So we question how this might affect their results. The fifth question was about clinical
0: skills, which may vary. Much of the quality of procedural sedation may vary from patient to patient. The skill of the individual clinicians may have a significant impact on the success of intraarticular injections and nerve blocks. For example, all of the intraarticular injections were done using a landmark technique, and the pain score varied dramatically from 0 out of 10 in one study to
1: 7 out of 10 in another. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. Uh, can sometimes I'm very successful and intra-articular is amazing. And other times it just does not go the way I wish. Our nerdy question number six is about the myriad of different techniques you can use to get a shoulder back in. Personally, I don't know any literature that says that one technique is better than any other, but the use of different techniques is a potential confounder in these studies. There are some techniques that I would generally avoid when patients are awake, but there are other techniques that you can perform that may actually perform better when a patient is awake and cooperating with you. So one might guess that the technique could vary uh, between the different groups. So our question was, were the techniques reported and did the authors think that the, that might impact their results?
0: We touched a little bit on adverse events, and although the definitions were variable enough that they decided not to perform a meta-analysis, there seems to be significantly more adverse events in the intravenous sedation group. However, not all adverse events are created equal. Prior sedation literature has often considered brief apnea, as seen on capnography, with no change in oxygen saturation as an adverse event despite the fact that absolutely nothing bad happens to the patient. It is a monitor-oriented outcome, a moo, and not a poo, a patient-oriented outcome. We know that true adverse events are extremely rare with procedural sedation, but they do occur, and so we wanted to know if they had a sense of whether the adverse events seen in these trials
1: were events that clinicians or patients would actually care about. Nerdy question number eight gets into some of the hard part of evidence-based medicine, applying it to your own practice setting. So it's about the impact of individual hospital systems. I've worked in many different hospital systems in my career, and the ease of procedural sedation varies dramatically. In some systems, it can be done almost immediately for all patients. And in other systems, it is next to impossible with extremely long delays. The system in which these studies were performed could obviously therefore really impact the results being seen. For example, although intraarticular injections might have a statistically shorter emergency department length of stay, the mean ED length of stay in the procedural sedation group here seems very long with a minimum of three hours and the longest length of stay reaching eight hours. Now, COVID has hurt patient flow a little bit over the last couple of years, but I have never seen ED length of stays that long for simple anterior shoulders dislocations, at least prior to the pandemic. I wonder whether some of these departments were adhering to that old unnecessary NPO times prior to, d- to sedation, which would therefore make the sedation group look artificially worse. So we asked the authors to comment on how this variation in health systems might impact the results and also how that same variation might impact the application of those results. Okay,
0: so that leads into number nine, because while we're talking about length of stay and efficiency, I have trouble directly comparing these techniques. A procedural sedation might take more time for the patient and the department as it can be difficult to gather all the resources needed. However, from a physician's standpoint, the sedation is pretty quick. On the other hand, when we perform peripheral nerve blocks, I have to spend more time with the patient, which means the other patients who are waiting for me will take longer to be seen. So I imagine the answer will be specific to each individual department, but we wondered how you
1: balance those conflicting interests. You already told us the result. Do whatever your nurses tell you again. Oh yeah, that's right. And our last nerdy question, and I suggested to you, Ken, this maybe should be a permanent nerdy question, the complete evidence-based medicine picture. So critical appraisal often gets really focused on methodology and statistics, but evidence-based medicine is about a lot more than that. When defined by David Sackett, evidence-based medicine must account for the values of our patients and for clinical judgment. However, we rarely talk about the impact of clinical judgment in these journal club type settings. So my question for our authors and probably for our, our audience as well, I'd love to hear comments is, you know, anyone who spent a lot of time with this, this topic, how do you account for those factors? What factors impact your clinical judgment when you're trying to decide the best approach to sedation and analgesia in shoulder dislocations? Well, I've got an answer for that. I'd love to hear it. It all depends.
0: Oh, I knew oh, you walked right into that one. All right, my friend, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them
1: to the SGEM's conclusions. So we agree with the author's conclusions that the available data does not suggest a difference in the rate of reduction success or patient satisfaction. It's important to emphasize the uncertainty remaining based on this data and the need for high quality trials to guide care. And can you give an S-GEM bottom line? It's important to embrace that full definition of evidence-based medicine. Although there isn't a clear winner based on just the literature, clinicians are going to have to use their clinical judgment to determine which approach will be best in their own personal healthcare setting and for their specific patients. Maybe more importantly than that, it'll be really important to determine your patient's values and involve them in shared decision-making. <sighs> That was a great bottom line. All right. Can you give a case resolution? So although this patient is afraid of needles, he does decide to go for an intra-articular injection. He decides that that's preferable to waiting for a sedation bed. The procedure goes smoothly and the shoulder slips right back in before you can even start doing your reduction technique.
0: And how about taking this study
1: and applying it clinically? So there is significant uncertainty here with regards to the best approach for sedation and analgesia in the reduction of anterior shoulder dislocations. Intraarticular anesthesia, peripheral nerve blocks, and intravenous sedation are all reasonable approaches. And so what are you going to tell the patient? So I might say something like, you have a shoulder dislocation, which means you need my help to get that arm back into the shoulder joint. We have many options to do that. For some people, there are actually techniques that cause almost no pain. And so we can try to reduce your shoulder with no pain medication at all. However, there are also many options to control your pain, including an injection into the shoulder itself, an injection that will numb the nerves to the shoulder, and an intravenous medication that will put you to sleep so you don't remember or feel anything. All right, it's time for the keener contest and last week's
0: winner was Madison Osentoski. She knew Thumper is the rabbit from the Disney movie Bambi that shares the name of the automated CPR device that was first manufactured in the 1970s. All right, Justin, what question do you have this
1: week? So this is going to be a bit more of a random guess than a known trivia, but can you guess the technique that I use personally to reduce my own shoulder? And because that's really hard, I'll give you a hint. It has a Canadian-based name. Oh, so did they name that technique in
0: Lethal Weapon where he jammed his shoulder up against the uh, door jam and put his shoulder back in?
1: Is that is that the technique you're looking for? <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's named. I haven't tried that yet. But if you if you want to try to get that published and we can get it named out for ourselves, I'm all for that, Ken. What was his name? Riggs? (laughs) Riggs and Myrtle. Yeah, Riggs. Yeah, definitely Riggs. So that was the Martin Riggs technique.
0: That is not the answer to this week's Keener question. We're looking for what technique Justin personally used. Oh, and we could give another hint. It was on the slope of a ski hill. And he put his shoulder back in using this Canadian technique. And if you've got the correct answer, then send me an email to thesgem at gmail.com. With Keener in the
1: subject line, the first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. So we've said it a few times already. This is an SGEM Hop episode, which means we'd really love for you to get involved. This is your opportunity to ask questions and leave comments for our authors. So what do you guys think about this systematic review and meta-analysis? Hit us up on Twitter using that SGEM Hop hashtag, or get over to the SGM blog and leave your questions and comments there.
0: And I will forward any of those questions and comments to Dr. Yamamoto and see if we can post the responses on the blog. Thanks, Justin, for another great episode. I think the next time we are together is for a EM Cases series or an EM Cases conference with our good friend Anton Hellman.
1: I'm super excited for that. Uh, the EM Cases uh, Summit. If people uh, haven't signed up for Take Case yet, join it because it, that should be a great deal of fun. I think you're shortchanging us, though. So I think very soon we're going to get together for a hypothermia episode, maybe, or some, something else like that. Oh, yeah.
0: That's right. We do have something in the mix. It's just not a hop episode and we won't be in person. But normally we get our SGM hop authors to give the SGM tagline. So we're going to break this down and I'll do the first half and you do the second half. Here we go.
1: We should have translated it into Japanese and you could read it out in Japanese, no?
0: And have me time to say it. <laughs> yeah. And our listenership take-
1: just went down to a nice round number, zero. <laughs> <laughs> Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. (laughs) Put your head on my shoulder.